Hey there, everyone. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg, here with another episode of Everything is Interesting. We're in studio, as always, with Jefferson Smith. What's going on, Jefferson? Hi. <laughs> so this last week, we reached out to our listeners to see what burning science questions you guys have. And the kids from Mrs. Pace's sixth grade class at Pleasant Valley Middle School in Vancouver wrote in with a bunch of great questions. So many questions, in fact, that we made two shows out of it. This week, we'll tackle half the questions, and then the next week's show, we'll tackle the other half. All right, Jefferson, what's our first question? Our first question is, why do different <laughs> species of birds fly in different formations? Submitted by Avery C. By the way, those are not formations submitted by Avery C. The question was submitted by Avery C. Great observation, Avery, and great distinction, Jefferson. Not all flocks of birds travel in the same formation. The shape is highly dependent on what the birds are doing that day. Geese, for instance, when they are on their long migratory journey from one part of the continent to the I other, they are usually flying in a pattern you could draw with one unbroken line. These linear patterns, called echelons, commonly resemble the letter V. So, the air moving off the tip of a goose's wing as it flaps moves in two different directions. The air that the wing moves downwards ends up directly behind the goose's body, and the air that the wing moves upwards ends up out into the side, sort of diagonally behind the goose. Now, if you're the guy stuck behind this flapper, you definitely don't want to get caught in the downdraft, which will push you back down towards the earth. So each goose, it, goose in an echelon <laughs> positions itself diagonally right behind its neighbor's outside wing. This forms that recognizable V-shape when they all do it together and helps the geese conserve energy, which they need lots of to complete the cross-continental trip. So let's say, though, that you're the little Voxes Swifts that visit Portland every fall and that we watch nest in the chimney of Chapman Elementary School. At this point, the Swifts are not migrating a long distance as the geese are, but attempting to organize the safe movement of all 15,000 or so members of their flock from the trees of Forest Park to the chimney for bedtime. So many Swifts. In this case, it's more important for the Swifts to conserve their energy and more, or sorry, it's less important for the Swifts to conserve their energy like the geese do, and more important that their group has plenty of watchful eyes on the perimeter and can move quickly to avoid any potential predators. Communication and uniform movement is much easier when each group member of the Swifts has, let's say, six or seven neighbors, one in every direction. Flying in a linear pattern like the geese do would make this pretty difficult. So birds like the swifts instead form these dense cloud-like formations called murmurations. So as it turns out, the difference in bird formations has less to do with the differences between species and more to do with what the birds are trying to accomplish as they fly. So thanks for your question, Avery. All right. So I think what you said was it's a combination of wind res addressing wind resistance and communication. I once asked my grand—is that roughly accurate? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So I once asked my grandfather about why there were, uh, um, or he actually asked me. He said, "Do you know?" He said, "Jeff, do you know why? Do you know why when you look at a uh, at an arrow of geese, there's more more geese in uh, in one." That, that, that it's oh, not, that, that it's one crooked. side is longer. You know, do, you know, do you know why it's crooked? I don't know the answer. And you know what he told me? What did he tell Because there's more birds in one of the uh, lines. Oh, That's what his answer that was. That was his answer? Yeah. Your, your grandfather, first of all, sounds like a really cool guy. And second of all, 
<laughs> that's that's the kind of answer I would give. Yeah, I feel then, like. then I'd be probably shot one of them. All right, next question: <laughs> Why are there droughts if seventy five percent of the world is made of water? Question submitted by Tawny: Why are there droughts if seventy five percent of the world is made of water? Ooh, this is a good one. First, we should talk about the word drought a little bit. Drought has many different meanings depending on, you know, a person's perspective. So, for instance, a, a farmer can experience a drought if, say, there just isn't enough groundwater available to grow, I don't know, their crops of cucumbers this year. But to someone who studies the weather, like a meteorologist, a drought can mean simply a historically low rainfall in some random area in the world. But every drought means a shortage of water but it's specifically a shortage of usable water. And there is not a lot of usable water on the surface of the Earth. I mean, even though it's covered in water, 97% of it is ocean water. And that's millions of cubic miles of salty seawater that is not particularly useful to us. We can't drink it, we can't cook with it or bathe in it, our crops won't grow in it. And even if we just wanted to use ocean water to flush our toilets, the salt would eventually corrode the pipes it travels in. Fun fact, too, I think 2% of the 3% that's not in the ocean is locked up in the ice caps and the glaciers. So that leaves, Ooh, that is a fun fact. That leaves like less than 1% that could ever be and ever was freshwater. So uh, since we're talking about freshwater, if all water sources eventually run into the salty ocean, how is there even freshwater on Earth at all? Well, a tiny percentage of seawater ends up evaporating. That sounded Ooh, like a large that percentage. That sounds familiar. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, <laughs> but if you think about how big and deep the ocean is, oh, yeah. it's big. So it ends up evaporating and rising up into the atmosphere. The rain stopped. <laughs> it, was a it was just a brief shower. <laughs> it was just a brief it was a shower. Flash it's flood. just to set the tone for the discussion yeah. about evaporation and condensation. Uh -huh. Because as the the water, the seawater evaporates up, it leaves the salt molecules behind, and then once in the air, it cools, uh, condenses into clouds, and eventually falls back down as that burst of rain uh, you heard, or perhaps snow, or hail, or sleet. Uh, anyways, all that provides us with the drinkable fresh water that we rely on. And if you live in an area that's experiencing a drought, an even smaller fraction of that tiny fraction of drinkable fresh water is available to you. So droughts can be caused by changes in temperature, loss of the plant life that helps hold water in the soil, um, overuse of our freshwater sources, longer one. periods without rain, you know, basically anything that causes less fresh water to enter the ecosystems we live in and more fresh water to escape those ecosystems. Now, of course, you're probably all thinking, well, how come we can't just remove the salt from the ocean water ourselves and make our own fresh water? Because salt's really small. <laughs> well, it is once <laughs> it's dissolved. But the answer is we can. It's just really, really expensive, and it requires a ton of energy. So uh, one day in the near future, this process, which is called desalination, may be a viable option for providing water to communities who suffer from droughts regularly. <coughs> but the technology still has a really long way to go. I'd say it's worth investing in. Yeah, so the moral of the story is clean, fresh water is really precious, which is a good reminder to use it wisely. All right. Absolutely. All right, Tawny, so drought is about usable water, and salt water might be cool for floating, but not a lot of other stuff. Ready for the next question? Let's do it. How does magnetic levitation work, asks Sean E. Whew. Okay, this is a challenge. Are you guys ready? Get your thinking caps on. Magnets. Levitation. Have you had your four cups of coffee this morning? It I, works okay. because of magnets. Okay, next says, question. I keep thinking it says magic levitation every time I look magic at it. Levitation. Magic That's levitation. That's a whole other, yeah. 
I mean, that some people think that it's magic. <laughs> All right, so magnetic levitation, which is the concept of using only the force of magnets to keep something like a train suspended in the air, is a pretty amazing feat of mechanical engineering. So how does it work? Well, it has to do with utilizing the repelling power of two incredibly strong electromagnets. So you did just so, say it works because of magic, because of magnets. Electromagic. Magic. Magic. Magnets. So unlike a refrigerator magnet, an electromagnet is created by running electricity through a piece of metal. Magnetism is the attraction or repulsion between two charged particles, like electrons or protons. Electricity is electrons that are moving in the same direction through a piece of metal, jumping from atom to atom. These moving electrons push or pull on the charged particles in the objects around them. So run this stream of electric electrons Mm -hmm. through a piece of metal wire, and they will repel or attract a nearby piece of metal, like, say, a paperclip, with consistent force keep the electricity flowing, and the wire ends up acting like a magnet. Now, let's imagine that we have two of these incredibly strong electromagnets. Each magnet has a positive side and a negative side, which is determined by the way the electrons are lined up. And as you probably know, the positive and negative sides of two magnets will attract each other. There was a sound of a smacking. T- oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Attracting each other. With them on magnets. <laughs> All right. But then you line up, this, line up the magnets with the same sides facing, and each magnet will push the other one away. So... That's the sound of pushing away. It's if a you hard sound know, to find. It, it's the, that's the pushing away sound. If you were wondering <laughs> what the universal sound is for pushing away, can we play that again? Okay. So that's... So let's play the smack. The smack is slow. Okay, so this, it, it waits a long time, then it comes at you fast, and then here's the pushing away. Let's play the pushing away. Okay, keep going. Yeah, now you understand magnets. You've learned something. Okay. So, <laughs> attach one powerful electromagnet to the bottom of a train with the positive side facing down. Y'all got that in your mind's eye? And attach another magnet to the tracks with the positive side facing up. And you guessed it, the magnets push away from each other. <laughs> which causes the train to hover above the tracks. Electromagnets are perfect for this job because by turning the electricity on and off, you can effectively turn the levitation on and off. Ooh, so cool. Electromagnets also help to move the train down the tracks. Place a magnet on the front of the train, the positive side facing out. Now place an electromagnet on the tracks with the negative side facing out. The positive train will be attracted to the negative point on the track and will move towards it. <laughs> it's a great sound effect because that's definitely a steam engine which magnetic levitation trains don't have okay so you can alternate which way the electricity is flowing through an electromagnet over and over again really quickly changing which side of the magnet is positive and which is negative so when the train reaches the negative point on the tracks switch the current on the track magnet so it's now positive and it will repel the also positive train away This repeating push-pull motion causes the train to move down and along the tracks. So thanks for your question, Sean. This is super interesting stuff. Magnetic levitation is already being used to power energy-efficient trains in places like Japan and Germany. By levitating above their tracks, these trains don't have to deal with the friction of their wheels rubbing against the ground, so that lets them go extra fast, like 375 miles an hour fast. That's so fast. My car only goes, like, what, 90 tops? 100 miles tops? I haven't tested this cops out there i didn't i have not tested this that's something you need a faster car probably 
All right. So I think I think here is my summary. Okay, I think it takes I think the answer to the question was three steps. I believe here's step one. Okay, I believe here <laughs> is step two. And then therefore here's step three. Step three takes a little bit. There we go. Yeah. I think that's what it was. All right. The culmination, the culmination of all of those steps is magic. magic. So I think we've successfully answered the question. Well explained. Next question. Submitted by Paige M. Last names are held harmless to protect the innocent. I think you skipped one. You forgot about Ella's question. Ella's we question. don't want to forget about Ella. She oh, Ella. Where's Ella? Oh, here. There's Ella's question. <laughs> Our next question. Ella, Ella, we wanted to keep so protected as an innocent that we weren't even going to say either of her names. Here is the question submitted by <laughs> Ella R. How much gas is used per year damaging the world's air? How much gas is used per year? All right. So to start off, we had to assume that by gas, you meant gasoline, right? As in the fuel we use to power the motors and machines uh, like cars and boats. The U.S. Energy Information Administration reports that last year in 2016, approximately 144 billion, billion. gallons of motor gasoline was consumed in our country alone. That means on average, almost 400 million gallon, gallons used per day. That's like 600 Olympic-sized swimming pools of gasoline. Per day. This was apparently, yeah, which is nuts, this was apparently the largest amount of annual motor gasoline consumption on record. Our studio audience is blown away by this statistic. <laughs> well, it is a lot of gas, man. It's they are numerous but quiet. All right, and, and good on you, Ella, for noting in your question that all this gas that we use up, all this huge amounts of gas, has damaging effects to the quality of our air. Burning gasoline in, say, a car produces all kinds of stuff that reduces air quality, like methane, nitrous oxide, carbon monoxide, and other smog-forming emissions. Poor air quality is a pretty big contributor to poor health in the communities that suffer from it. It increases ailments like asthma and bronchitis and increases the risk of other life-threatening conditions like cancer. And who wants that? Is that me? Oh, listen no. to all those asthmatic people coughing in the background. Thanks, studio audience. Um, yeah, we didn't need a sound clip. We could have just had I should have just coughed, yeah. Jefferson, can you cough into the microphone, please? No. Uh, see? No. We, good thing we had the clip. I'm not here to okay, cough for okay, you. But I probably am. The good news is that we've got pretty great vehicle emission standards, and researchers are hard at work developing new, cleaner fuel and energy technologies so we don't have to use all of that gasoline. Great question, Ella. Okay. Next question. I have been waiting for a while to ask Paige M's question. <laughs> Okay. A, a while is in like two minutes or like your whole That's life. a long time for Jefferson. It's been timeless. He lives in I've been the waiting in a timeless, for a timeless amount of time. How oh, do trees give off oxygen? How do trees give off oxygen? Okay. This is a great question. And I wouldn't blame you if you waited your whole life to hear the answer to this question. Because it concerns one of my favorite chemical processes, photosynthesis. And it's just what the word sounds like. Trees and other plants use photons, which are light energy from the sun, to create... To me, it sounds like something I would do on Instagram, to be clear. I would <laughs> synthesize a bunch of pictures, but I'll go no. with your photons. No, thing. Jefferson. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know... Only to you, Kira, do I think it is exactly what it sounds like. The photosynthesis Well, it's of course, just what it sounds like. Synthesizing <laughs> photons. Everybody knows what a photon is. Keep Wait, going. no, no, we're not synthesizing photons. Oh, good. So it doesn't even sound that even that part. And this it? is why you pay attention. 
<laughs> I don't know, Devastator. Are you going to pass the quiz at the wait, end of this? Wait, no. no water yet. No water yet. Okay, all right. Back it to is it. what it sounds like. Rainfall. <laughs> or maybe a river. Oh, these poor sixth graders. We are just going to confuse the <laughs> heck out of them. Okay, okay, so listen. Photosynthesis. Trees take photons, which mm-hmm. is light from the sun, mm-hmm. and synthesize sugar. And as it turns out, just oxygen like it is a handy byproduct of photosynthesis. So synthesizing the sugar that trees use as food requires more ingredients than just the sunlights, the photons. They also need the atoms that make up a sugar molecule. So six carbon, 12 hydrogen, and six oxygen atoms to be exact. Okay, now cue the water sound. Woo! Water! Luckily, plants can get all these atomic ingredients from good old-fashioned water. Water is readily available in the soil at most times. Which just is like it sounds. Which is why roots down into the earth to gather, gather it. They also get some of the needed atoms by taking in carbon dioxide from the air through small holes between their cells called stomata. Stomata. That's <laughs> like... <laughs> it's like banana. Where's that clip of you saying banana? I banana. need that all the time. There it is. Okay. Then, stomata, then a chemical inside the plant called chlorophyll, which gives leaves their green color, absorbs some of the light energy from the sun. This energy causes some electrons in the chlorophyll to get really excited. And they pop right off the molecule. They were excited. These excited electrons travel down a chain of different molecules, like dancers at a party, getting all the other electrons excited, until finally that excited energy is used to push some carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms together to make a molecule of sugar. Food. So the ingredients that the plant takes in to complete photosynthesis, carbon dioxide and water, those both contain oxygen atoms. More oxygen atoms, in fact, than the plant actually needs to make their molecules of sugar. So all of that extra oxygen, all those extra oxygen atoms, end up being released into the air as a gas, which is the stuff that we humans then get to breathe. Hey, thanks, trees. Thanks, trees. Okay. So as I understand it, photosynthesis happens just just like it sounds. Okay. <laughs> so so just like On it Instagram. sounds. So step one is taking photons to synthesize with sugar, just like it sounds. Step two... <laughs> Who gave him the button to the sound effect? <laughs> I mean, just, step was, two is a train. Step two is a train. Step yeah. one was the water. No, step no. two is the train. We were going to do Get it. Get on the oxygen train. Woo, woo. Okay. No, step one is sunlight. <laughs> step two is taking carbon dioxide and water to get all the atoms that you need. And then step three is synthesize it into sugar and give off all the excess oxygen that you didn't need as breathable air. Okay, In next. other news, can we keep that train soundtrack around for every time that we derail, which is always an option? Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Just like it sounds, derailing when in fact it's on the rails. Next question by Anita G, unless you tell me otherwise. How does moss reproduce? Ooh, this is my favorite. Okay, all right. All Just right. like Anita, it sounds. I, lo- <laughs> I love you for asking this. The moss reproductive cycle, because I'm a nerd probably, was one of my favorite things to study in biology class. I can vouch for this. It really was. She talked about it all the time. Yeah, I don't know why. It just really got me. But I think it's because I got to learn when I was studying it that mosses are kind of, well, genetic weirdos. Takes one to know one. Yeah, well, okay. So so mosses' grown-up bodies, get this, their grown-up bodies only contain half 
the normal set of chromosomes. They're freaks. <laughs> okay, in case that doesn't mean anything to you. Is that the you. freak song? No, it's the chromosome song. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, the chromosome song. Okay, so chromosomes are what we call the neat little packets of DNA that contain all of our genes, which are the instructions on how to build our bodies. A set of these DNA-containing chromosomes exist in every single cell of your body. All of them. So consider that you, the human, grew from a fertilized egg into a grown-up body that has 46 chromosomes. 23 that you got from your mom and 23 that you got from your dad. Most plants and animals mix chromosomes from two parents like this because variations in your genes means you have a much better chance of making it through all the hard times and surviving out there in the world. So a normal old plant seed is also a product of fertilization. It contains 23 chromosomes from the pollen of the male flower and 23 from the egg within the meat female flower. Just like us. Just Woo! like us. Plants, <laughs> you and me. <laughs> okay, where I don't even where's that derailing sound? I don't know. There's 23 chromosomes from pollen. There's 23 chromosomes from the egg, and the egg and the pollen have joined forces to produce a seed. Now the seed falls to the ground and grows into a plant that also has, just like you, 46 chromosomes. Hurrah! Yay! Okay, but but here's what's different about moss. Mosses don't use seeds to reproduce. They use spores. And a spore starts out with only 23 chromosomes, half a set. And then those spores turn into and grow up into moss plants that, get this, also only have 23 chromosomes. So only half of us. Only, only half of half a set. Yeah, and that's super weird because most things don't complete development when they only possess half their DNA. Like if you just had a human egg that didn't wasn't fertilized with the other half of its chromosomes, it wouldn't grow into a person. Right. So each moss stalk, the little fuzzy green thing that you see, is either male or female. To reproduce, the moss has to be wet, as the male stalks contain sperm that can only travel through water. So when the sperm manages to reach the egg located in the female stalk, they fuse and fertilize and then eventually develop into a special protrusion called a sporophyte. Sporophyte. You can see these with your magnifying glass. They look like little hairs with tiny capsules on the end that stick out from the top of the moss. Now, these sporophytes, they are the only parts of the moss plant that have a complete set of 46 chromosomes. So even the spores contained inside the sporophyte, they only have half the set. And the sporophyte, well, it eventually releases these spores and the whole process starts over again. Yay, more moss. So while humans and flowering plants live out most of their existence with a body containing a complete set of chromosomes, like normal people, and, all, and only a few of our cells have half a set, mosses are the opposite. They live out their lives with most of their body containing only half a set of chromosomes, and only a few cells have a full set. See? Weirdos. Operating with just a, without a full set. Yeah. Is the summary. Well, they're, they're, they're primary bodies. Like of the moss that we see, that, that we lay on, that we take naps on. Half a set of chromosomes. That's just a half a set. Yeah, like but you then look, the at a tree, look at a tree or a flower, full set of chromosomes right there. But just the sporophytes, just like it sounds, have a full set. <laughs> yeah, and those are those little protrusions. Just like, just like it sounds, Jefferson. In retrospect, you know, I realize that if you're not a huge nerd, maybe this 
isn't as exciting to you I as still it is love to it. us. But I'm fairly positive that most of our listeners are total nerds. So, like, shout out to the nerd culture. And also, I'm sure you'd sound that. And you don't exciting. look at a picture of it. It's much easier to understand with a picture. And if you have questions, by the way, you can text in 971-220-5979. 971-220-5979. We can capture them for a future show. Where else? If listeners have questions that they want you to ask, how should they submit those questions to you? Oh other my than gosh. 971-220-5979. They should go to our website, everythingisinteresting.org. Yeah, everything is interesting.org. And there's a contact sheet you can fill out that will go directly to our email. Uh, we will get your questions and we will respond. You can also... And please, please email us yeah. your questions because we love listener oh, questions. Oh, it's so much fun. number one, we don't have to come up with questions. And number two, we just, we love that, uh, you know, our answers are, are answering the real questions out there. Yeah, it helps us focus too. But hey, you know, kids, all you kids from Mrs. Pace's class, Avery, Ella, Sean, Tani, Paige, and Anita, thank you so much for submitting these questions. We were so excited to answer them and you guys are awesome. And Kylie, Kylie, Nathan, Nikki, Lily, and Dylan, we're going to get to your questions next week. And here's a teaser for all you listeners. We're going to find out what the coldest temperature on Uranus's moon is. Whose? The planet. I believe it's Uranus. Uranus? Uranus. Don't tell me how to science. Ooh. <laughs> you tell me how to science. I can't every drop this week. mic because it's attached That's to stuff. True. That is true. I'm Great. sorry, Jefferson. That's your job. No, no, don't say sorry. That's your job. Thank you, Jefferson. And hey, thanks to everybody out there for listening to Everything is Interesting. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. We will see you next week. Bye, guys. 